at this basketball game today. And unfortunately, today is my longest sermon ever. That's not really. That's not really. It is just a game. Before I read the text one last comment with my team out and they deserve to be out they didn't play well enough to win um, I've been watching sports most of my life the team that plays best wins always 100% of the time and they didn't play the best and so they lost but with my team out officially I do want Illinois to win the whole thing if they can sincerely um, you're welcome you're welcome John chapter 12 Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this beautiful day. And Lord, we rejoice in your goodness. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain for us, Lord, and we rejoice in that. Lord, as we come another Sunday closer to Easter, Lord, may every Sunday be a day to remember that the tomb was empty and that Jesus is the Lord who has risen and who invites us to know him and promises eternal life for all who believe in him. Lord, I do want to pray for the family of Joanne Morton on their tragic loss this weekend of her grandson-in-law. Lord, I pray for her granddaughter, Casey, and their children as they grieve this tremendous and difficult loss in this time. Lord, I just pray for your nearness to them and to the family. Lord, Lord, we live in a fallen world where things are often not as they should be. Lord, in, in those times, may we continue to look to you and your goodness. Lord, we pray for our time today as we study in your word. And we pray that we be pointed to Christ and his gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in John chapter 12. And even though it's the 12th chapter of a book that's 21 chapters, this is the final week of Jesus' life. I've used this illustration before, but perhaps the longest biography written about President Abraham Lincoln, written by his former secretaries John Hay and John Nicolay, their book, 
the life of Lincoln is 5,000 pages. Lincoln's death is covered in 20 pages. But in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 2, the Gospel has been building up and up and up to the crucifixion and Christ's death. Jesus has frequently talked about his hour, referring to the hour of his death. Jesus makes references to being lifted up, referring to being lifted up literally on the cross. We've seen run-ins with hostile authorities who are plotting against Jesus. And we come to chapter 12, and it's his final week. Everything that comes from this point forward in the Gospel of John is either the build-up to the crucifixion, the event of his crucifixion, or his resurrection ministry. And the reason why it keeps coming up and why it takes up so much real estate in the Gospel of John is because it's what his entire ministry revolves around. It's what his entire life revolves around. And it's what his entire mission in the world revolves around. That Jesus is the Lord who came into a dead world to bring eternal life. And it is because of his death and resurrection that all of this is possible. It is the pinnacle of human history. And that is why the Gospels devote so much time to his death. And with that, we jump into this passage, and we see Jesus at a dinner party. And we'll look at his ministry and impact on three different people in this passage. Mary of Bethany, Judas Iscariot, and Lazarus. Going back to our passage, beginning verses 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. The passage begins by giving a time designation, six days before the Passover. Two things to note. First, this passage is less than a week before Jesus would be crucified. Jesus died at the time of Passover. He dies on Friday. This is six days before that. So it's the previous, it's the Saturday before the Friday. The following section of this passage, Lord willing, where we'll be next Sunday, is the triumphal entry, which happens on the Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. That's where Jesus goes into Jerusalem for the final time before he's crucified. And so this dinner is the night before that significant event in Jesus' ministry, before the triumphal entry. Now, the night before major events in our life, so often is almost like a sacred time. The night before your wedding is a night unlike any other night in your life. You know you're on the verge of something monumental. I remember when I came here a year and a half ago to candidate to be the pastor. Met most of you on Saturday. Preached on Sunday. The night before you preached a candidate in the church is not like any other night in your lifetime. It's kind of stressful. <laughs> the night before a surgery can be anxious, trying to do things to keep your mind off of it or see family or do something you enjoy. Well, for Jesus, it's the night before he goes to Jerusalem to be crucified. And how is he spending that time? He's having dinner with his friends. 
A second thing to note about John mentioning six days. If you remember back at the beginning of our study in this book, early on, John makes several references to days. We talked about it quite a bit at the time. John 1, we see some of Jesus' early travels, calling some of his earliest disciples. And John keeps saying things like, the next day. And they'll tell us a little bit more about what Jesus did the next day. And then he'll keep going and going. And then we come to the beginning of chapter 2, the wedding feast at Cana. And how does John begin that? On the third day. And when you look at that, John opens the ministry of Jesus. He creates a week. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the gospel records a week. And here at the end of his ministry, John is recording another week. Certainly a week is theologically significant. It's a significant amount of time. It is in a week that the Lord creates, does his works of creation. And it is in this week that the Lord Jesus brings salvation. And the purpose also of mentioning six days is significant because it's an incomplete week. It's on the seventh day that the Lord rests. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead is what brings the ultimate rest and Sabbath for humanity. The text continues, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was. And I like the little note that John adds, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. As if we could possibly forget that from the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, Jesus, John chapter 11, raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. The text continues, verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 2 says, So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So verse 2 is where it mentions that they gave the dinner. We don't know how soon after raising Lazarus from the dead this dinner party happens, but it seems reasonable that it was pretty close in time. Travel was difficult. This dramatic miracle had just happened. Seems unlikely that it was several months later, but we don't know for sure. Regardless, in celebration, they have a special dinner to honor Jesus. John mentions that Martha served. We only see Martha in three places in the Gospels, and she's always got her sleeves rolled up doing something, staying busy, being proactive. She's the one serving the dinner. Lazarus and Jesus are sitting together at the table. What a picture that is. A man who was raised from the dead by Jesus, sitting with him at the table of fellowship with the Lord. That's the hope of the gospel. That is the invitation that Jesus makes to the whole world. We who are dead in our sins are invited to the great feast. Revelation 19 gives a picture of heaven and a great wedding feast. That is the promise and the hope of all who have belief in Jesus, sitting at the Lord's table with him. And that's where Lazarus is after having been raised from the dead. Verse 3, the passage mentions the activity of Mary. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary anoints Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, anointing was done for people who had specific offices, like prophet, priest, and king. 
Anointing was done, among other things, to set them apart. It was done as a symbol of that person having the Spirit of the Lord. And as a brief reminder, Jesus' title, Christ, comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed. It's not his last name, it's his title. Throughout the Gospels and throughout Paul's writings, they continue to beat the drum that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed. And here we see the Christ being anointed by Mary. Now I'll pause for just a moment. All four Gospels record an event in which Jesus is anointed. John's Gospel is the only one that mentions that it was Mary who did the anointing. I want to talk briefly about this event in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 38 says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's home, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So Luke refers to the woman who anoints Jesus as a woman of the city and mentions that she's a sinner. This is often interpreted as this woman was a prostitute. And so many people assume that Mary of Bethany also was a prostitute. Now, the view that a lot of New Testament scholars have is that the event in Luke is actually a different event than what Matthew, Mark, and John record, that Jesus was anointed at least twice. Luke's story is too different. Some of the early church fathers, we don't know this for a fact, but some of the early church fathers actually thought in both instances it might have been Mary. Perhaps Luke, it's the beginning of her coming to faith, and then she does it again later. I find that very interesting and compelling, but we don't know for sure. But for right now, I think it's a different event specifically that happens in Luke's gospel. Back to John. Verse 3 again talks about the anointing. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Nard comes from a flowery plant that grows in the Himalayan regions of India. Since it was so rare and had to travel so far, it was extremely expensive. John will mention later in the passage that it was worth about 300 denarii, which is almost a year's wages. Can you imagine if somebody came up to you with some hand cream that was like $50,000? We don't know if Mary's family owned it. Maybe it had been passed down. Or if her family was extremely wealthy. Or if a bunch of people in the village of Bethany all went in together and put in money to buy it. We we don't know how she acquired this incredibly expensive ointment. For the people at the dinner party, though, it's probably the most expensive thing that they've ever seen in their entire lifetimes. Our text mentions that Mary anoints the feet of Jesus. This is an example of humility to wash the feet of another person. 
I've been married for almost four years. Carrie has not washed my feet one time. <laughs> it also foreshadows Jesus washing the feet of his disciples in John chapter 13. Something else to note about this event. John tells us that Mary anoints Jesus' feet. Matthew and Mark say that the oil was poured on Jesus' head. The latter would be expected for an Old Testament-style anointing. So which one's right? I think both are right. And that both Jesus' head and feet were anointed. Again, she's using like a pound of oil. Can you imagine if you were trying to use a 16-ounce bottle of Jergens? You'd be lotioning up your whole your teeth with that stuff. None of the gospel writers ever claim that they always give totally exhaustive reporting of the event. In fact, John, I keep pointing to this verse at the end of his gospel, says that Jesus did so many things that the whole world would not contain those books. And I point this out because when there are little discrepancies like this in the gospels, they shouldn't shake us or concern us or make us fearful. But what we should look to is what the different gospel writers, inspired by the Lord, what they're emphasizing and why they're emphasizing it. In John, it seems to be that he's talking about the feet of Jesus being anointed because it's showing Mary's humility before Christ. Lord willing, I'd actually love to, uh, on Sunday nights, probably not until next spring, uh, go through Mark just to get another gospel and to, again, you, you do see some of the different ways how the gospel writers describe and talk about events. Again, I think that they're consistent, but for theological reasons, sometimes things get pointed out or stated differently. Turning our focus again back to John, Mary has anointed the feet of Jesus. And again, it shows the humility that she has before Jesus. John also mentions the fact that she wipes her feet, wipes his feet with her hair. Again, total devotion to Christ that she shows. What's the most valuable thing that you own? In his commentary on John, Richard Phillips tells a story of F.B. Meyer, who was a preacher in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And he tells the story of a pastor who asked his church for a special love offering and to give something that was especially precious. Some people gave rings or jewelry. Some people gave money. But the most special thing put in the collection plate that day was a note from a woman whose daughter wanted to become a missionary in a faraway land. In those days, when someone entered the missions field, before modern technology and modern communication tools, that could sometimes mean that you would never see a person again. And this woman had told her daughter not to go because she couldn't bear to be separated from her. But on that day, out of her love for Christ, this woman decided that she could not stand in the way of her daughter and be selfish and to keep her daughter from going and sharing the good news of the gospel with others. That was what was most precious to her. For some of us, the most precious thing might be our time or our freedom. 
Maybe you've worked your whole life. And now maybe you're a little bit older. You've got some resources to do the things you want to do. I'm not judging that, by the way. For people who are retired, I hope you enjoy those years. I really do. I'm just saying that there can sometimes be a temptation to want to make things about ourselves. I did my time. I worked my job. I raised my kids. And I'm not saying that's true for everyone. But what I am saying is that freedom can become its own idol. Those are just a couple of examples. That there's no shortage of things that we can turn into idols. It's like John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. It's things that we can take and make the most important things in our lives. If it's anything but God, that's idolatry. And so for Christians, we should examine our own hearts and consider the things that we truly value. In this story, Mary gives something of tremendous value to Jesus. And so I ask, is Jesus the thing of greatest value in your life? We come to a second scene and see Judas, verses 4 and 5. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now to this point in John, the only other place where Judas has been, Judas has been mentioned is chapter 6. And both here and in chapter 6, John adds a note that Judas would betray Jesus. And we know that. And anyone who knows the story of Jesus knows that. And John, who wrote the Gospel of John, knows that. And Jesus knows that. But the people who are at the dinner party do not know that. So for just a moment, try to forget that Judas is Judas. Mary is anointing Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair. And Judas brings up the the amount of money that the ointment costs. And that it could have been sold and the proceeds could have been given to the poor. Perhaps it could have been tempting to want to agree with Judas. He points to the extravagance of Mary's gesture. But before we give Judas any credit, John quickly adds the note in verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas doesn't care about the poor. He wanted to have them sell the oil so that he could skim some of the money off the top. There's a quote from Richard Phillips that I I love in his commentary on John. He says, Judas shows us how persuasively a hypocrite can play the role of a disciple. Judas is putting up a facade. He's talking the talk, but he's out for himself the whole time. I borrow heavily from Phillips, by the way, in these couple verses, because I think he just has some really interesting observations about this scene. I think it can be so easy to, with Judas to focus only on his betrayal of Jesus. And I'm not saying that we should forget about that, because John reminds us of it in this section. But consider for a moment the situation that Judas is looking at Jesus, 
and what we can learn. That Judas is looking at Jesus and he's looking at what can come from Jesus. The devotion that other people give to Jesus. The gifts of great value that people bring to Jesus. And in his greed, Judas is focused on how he can get more of that for himself. And sadly, that so often happens within churches and within ministries. For people who come on Sunday nights, we've talked about this before. But it seems like there's a new scandal every week from some church or well-known ministry or Christian university. And when people get discredited for ministry for their own sins, especially people who are really prominent and well-known, they so often don't stay away. And part of that is that in America, there's so much for them to gain financially. Evangelicalism is its own industry in America, between publishing and recording and books and conferences. That's billions of dollars. And so people who are really gifted speakers and pastors and evangelists, people who are great teachers and speakers, well-known ministries and megachurches, these people have tons of money that they make. And that's why they don't stay away. Or why some of them don't stay away. Because it's their cash cow. Because they're not going to make money doing anything else. But there are other ways people can be tempted to want to use Jesus for worldly gain. It might not be about money. Maybe it's looking a certain way to the rest of the world. Maybe it's a certain respect that you get from being in a church. Or having a certain role within a church. We can fall in love with those things too. And make those our idols. There can always be a temptation to want to use Jesus. To want to use his church. And to ultimately make it about ourselves. And focus on how it benefits us. Rather than on how we're serving Christ. Again, that at least is a temptation. That we can face. Continuing in the passage. Verse 7. Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus tells Judas to leave Mary alone. He makes reference to the day of his burial. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago at the beginning that anointing would be something done to set someone aside in the Old Testament such as a prophet or priest or king. And that generally happened at the beginning of their ministry. But Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. Jesus talks of his burial. But that surely was not the intended purpose for why Mary had anointed Jesus. Yes, Jesus has faced threats to this point throughout the gospel. But those close to Jesus are oblivious to the fact that he's about to die. He's working this great miraculous ministry. They have no idea he'll be dead in less than a week. 
Now, people sometimes would have used different oils in ancient Israel when somebody was being buried. I don't think that was a universal custom that was practiced, but it is something that was done. So Mary thinks that she's anointing her king. And she is, but not in the way she thinks. Because Jesus says that this anointing is actually preparing for his burial. Yet it is because of that death and his resurrection that he is able to truly be the king. And defending Mary, Jesus is also giving legitimacy to the anointing that she gives him. He continues in verse 8. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus is not saying to forget the poor. But he is saying not to put the poor ahead of him. Now let's dive into that a little bit. In the Gospel of Matthew... Jesus gives the greatest commandment. Matthew 27, verses 37 to 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're certainly called to love God and to love people. But God comes first. Our love for people is meant to flow from our love for God. We're supposed to love people because we love our God. That's the order in which it works. It does not work the other way around. So we should never lose sight of the command to love our neighbor and to love people. Jesus exemplifies this throughout his ministry. We see him tending to those on the margins of society. The woman we talked about earlier in Luke 7, the woman in the city who anoints Jesus. The Samaritan woman in John 4. The woman caught in adultery in John 8. Lepers who are totally looked down upon by society. A woman perpetually unclean. People born with disabilities. We see great compassion from Jesus. But if we put people first above God, that becomes our idol. When we put people first, humanity becomes what we worship. And there's a lot of that in our world today. We can love our society or certain groups within our society above everything else. We can love our spouse or our kids above everything else. Whatever you love most is your God. But people make really bad gods. You can love people without loving God. But you cannot truly love God and not love people. But things need to be kept in their proper order. When we put people first, it makes it easy to ignore God. And again, don't misunderstand. I'm not undermining the love that we're called to have for our neighbors. I'm just putting it in its proper context. Third scene, Lazarus. Verse 9. 
When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus has had run-ins with the religious authorities throughout this gospel. At times, they've sought to arrest Jesus. At times, they've picked up stones to stone Jesus. But for just a moment, let's remember last week's passage. And in the aftermath of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, we saw the response of the Jewish leadership wanting to see Jesus put to death. After seeing the initial response from the leaders of the Sanhedrin, John adds the note in chapter 11, verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That became their focus. And John continues to elaborate on the fallout of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I didn't make a slide for this, but reading again from John chapter 11, beginning in verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Again, the warrant is out. There is a conspiracy against Jesus that's already in motion. And so when Jesus has come to this dinner party, word gets out. They're seeking to kill Jesus. But John mentions that they also want to put Lazarus to death. Why? Because people are believing in Jesus because of what they've seen him do to Lazarus. There's tragic irony when we see the pride of the Sanhedrin. Instead of falling before this great Savior, falling at his feet, the man who raises the dead to life, they're instead preoccupied with trying to kill him because he's not the Savior they expected and because they see him as a threat to their power. Jesus and Lazarus. The more I read these stories about Lazarus, the more I see Lazarus as a symbol for all Christians. Lazarus was a man who was dead and given life through Jesus. That's the gospel. We are all dead in our sins and given eternal life through Christ. He's a man who's known because of what Jesus did in his life. That's the way it should be for all Christians. That should be what people know about us and recognize about us. The fruit that we bear from knowing Jesus. It's interesting that in the Gospels, both of his sisters, Mary and Martha, at different times, talk. We hear from them. We never see Lazarus speak. Because the most important thing about Lazarus isn't what he has to say. It's what Jesus did to him. But Lazarus is also living in the world as a formerly dead man who's been given new life through Christ. And just as Jesus promises the disciples 
that they will suffer consequences for following him. People plan to kill Lazarus in response to what Jesus has done in his life. And it's a story that has happened again and again throughout the history of the church. We've seen it from tyrants. We've seen it from people of other religions. And from those led by false prophets. The world persecuting and oppressing God's people. Millions of Christians have died throughout the century for the name of Christ. Yet the gospel continues to go forth. Because a death cannot stop the gospel. Killing Lazarus would not stop the gospel. Not even the death of Christ. Because it is because Jesus died that he offers eternal life to all who believe in him. So there's three stories, and in this passage there are two ways to go. We see devotion to Christ and devotion to self. We see giving what's precious to Christ or using Christ to get what we desire. We see people trying to give to Jesus and people trying to take from Jesus. There's following Jesus and opposing Jesus. Mary gives the best that she has to Jesus. But that pales in comparison to what Jesus gives to us through his gospel. And for that, today and every day, we should praise him. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son. Lord, we are fallen and sinful people. And let us bask in the goodness of his grace that he has died so that we can have life. Lord, we could not earn that. We do not deserve it. But because of your goodness and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.